We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. Should we just get started then? Yeah, I guess we should. Hello, I mean, well, do you want to <gasps> go? Do you want to go? Should I go? Who should go? Oh, okay. Well, I mean, it was your idea. Pseudo script for this. I can go. I'm I'm keeping all of this in, by the way. So don't you oh, worry. Okay, good, good. Especially the part about the sexy poems. Let's like read one out loud. That'll keep our PG rating. <laughs> um, all right. So hello, welcome to reread. See, I feel like. It's, you we know, should have written a script for the no, opening it's fine. part. I mean, it's just gonna, it's the first episode's always awkward. Hello, this is the first episode of Rereads. We are people. And that's really all you need to know. Uh, I really feel like we should lead with we are people. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, I'm sure people were not robots. Yes. All so, right. So, I mean. I can do this. Uh, do you, oh, do you want to start again? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Again, I'm keeping all of this. I actually want to keep in the the people part. Why not? That's true. So, <laughs> hello. <laughs> you can start laughing whenever I start. Okay. All right. All right. I'm not going to say anything. Hello. This is the first episode of Reread, a podcast in which we are looking back at books that we read when we were younger and had very different minds and seeing if we have, still have the same opinions about them today. Uh, my name is Morgan. Mm, yeah, and I'm Casey. <laughs> Such enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean, this is the third attempt at an intro that we've done at Rambling. No, this, this is, is good. the second attempt. Uh, well, okay. I mean, we could make it a third attempt. <laughs> we could also like write an actual intro and then record that. Nah. But, sure. Let's just stick with whatever we're doing right now. It's a mess, just like the first book series that we're going to be talking oh about. See, that is a segue. Beautiful. Very well done. Thank yes, you. the first series we're going to be talking about is Chronicles of Narnia. And as you can already tell from Casey's enthusiasm, he really loved these books as kids. He was just deeply into them, carried the set around with him everywhere, just, you know, slept with them under his pillow. <sighs> Yeah, it's I I really loved all the Bible references. We're talking about the first book, unless you're some people, in which case it's the second book in the series, or maybe it's the last book. Who actually knows? We're talking about the Big Daddy. Yeah, we're talking about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe today. And I did some research, and apparently you did some research as well. Yeah. And we found the exact same quote. <laughs> to uh, support our argument here. The question was, was the series planned at all? And the answer straight from the horse's mouth is no, definitively not. This kid wrote a fan letter to C.S. Lewis, which he responded to, and he wrote, quote, The series was not planned beforehand as she thinks. And he's referring to this argument that the kid was having with his mom about the proper order of the books. Anyway, when I wrote The Lion, I did not know I was going to write any more. Then I wrote Prince Caspian as a sequel, and still didn't think there would be any more. 
and when I had done the voyage, I felt quite sure it would be the last, but I found I was wrong. I just want to submit this to the court. Quote, so perhaps it does not matter very much in which order anyone read them. End quote. Wait, no, there's part after that quote, too. All right. Do you want to do you want to finish it for me? Sure. So the end of the, the quote, at least, I mean, I'm sure there's more to the letter, but the end of this section is. I'm not even sure that all the others were written in the same order in which they were published. I did some research into that as well. The first three books that were published, so The Lion, the Witch, and the Road Rope, Prince Caspian, and The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, were published in the order that they were written. And then after that, everything just gets... I don't even know. It's so weird. So The Silver Chair, which was published next, was actually the fifth book he wrote. The Horse and the Boy was the next book he wrote, but that was published as the fifth in the series. The Magician's Nephew came second to last, but it was actually the last book he wrote. And The Last Battle was the second to last book he wrote. Hopefully that makes sense. It probably <laughs> it probably doesn't. There are charts online that people can look at if they want to see like side by side publication order versus chronological order versus writing order. Do your own homework because there's really no way to explain this. And I, I'm not sure why it was published in this order. I don't know why he wrote The Magician's Nephew last. I don't understand any of this. Do you? <laughs> well, I do think it's... Okay, I do think it's interesting just from this standpoint. So he clearly knew, had to have known, or one would assume he had to have known what was going on in The Magician's Nephew when he wrote The Last Battle, because um, spoilers for the entire Chronicles of Narnia series, both uh, the professor, whose name I forget, his actual name I forget, and then his friend, who are the two kids in Magician's Nephew, show up in Narnia heaven. So, like, the professor, it makes sense, but the friend... Like, we have gotten no, she hasn't been in the books if we're going in writing order yet. So, like, I assume Magician's Nephew would have had to have been planned. Did you, did you close your door just now? Uh, we can just assume, I don't know, a cat did it. You have a very strong cat. I've met this cat and the muscles on him, it's, it's unbelievable. They're wild. Anyway, point being, this was not planned. The order it was written is very strange. The order it was published is very strange. And presumably the order that we have chosen to read it is very strange and will not make sense. <laughs> and and you were telling me that like you just ventured into some of the scholarly work done on this? Yeah. I mean, I didn't look in detail. I just want everyone to know that a lot of scholars are very concerned about putting <laughs> forth an argument about what order to read them in, which... You know, I get seeing as we did spend like at least 20 minutes arguing about it. Yeah. But it, it is fascinating how much if you just like go on like JSTOR and just search Chronicles of Narnia or The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a lot of what will come up is just articles about what order you should read it in. And then uh, some interesting stuff about allegory. Yes, and I suppose we should talk about that because... The accusation of allegory is lobbed at the Chronicles of Narnia so much. C.S. Lewis did not actually consider Chronicles of Narnia allegory. 
Um, which is not to say that he denied that there was Christian influence. He said instead it was this sort of suppositional universe. Like, what if our God created this whole other world? Like, what would that look like? So, like, the references to Christianity are deliberate, but, like, it's not meant to be, you know, exact mirroring, which I think we'll talk about a little bit with Aslan's role in this book and how much he is or isn't Lion Jesus. Sweet, sexy Lion Jesus. Everyone's kissing Aslan in this book. That's something I noticed. Everyone's, <laughs> they, they, there's a lot of kissing going on of this god cat. Actually, you know what? Another article I found that I think was the most interesting one, just because I was like, what a wacky topic. <laughs> but they were talking about how uh, like C.S. Lewis was also very adamant he didn't like kids having romance. He's like, I think that's gross. Like, I don't want anyone having romance plot lines until they're older. Oh, so okay. he didn't. There's not a lot of romance in the Chronicles of Narnia. There are one or two romances, but most of the time they're pretty, like you don't get the romance parts on screen. So the article was talking about how, despite him trying to kind of keep that out, the references he uses keep kind of bringing it in the back door in these kind of weird ways. Uh, so the article talked a bit about, and I will uh, relook up the article and get the name and the author so they can be properly credited. But they talked quite a bit about how the um, White Witch is quite like the uh, Snow Queen in, I believe, the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. And the Better known between, as Disney's Frozen. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the very, very, very loose, <laughs> loose retelling in Frozen, which is not to take anything away from Frozen, which is great. Anyhow, the point <laughs> is that because the White Witch so clearly evokes the Snow Queen in this fairy tale, some of the interactions between her and Edmund are quite similar to the interactions between the Snow Queen and the man she kidnaps in that fairy tale, that it adds this like weird element of like weird sexual undertones to the interactions between the White Witch and Edmund. And the article continued on about several other instances of kind of sexuality creeping in the back door. But I was like, very interesting. I mean, I just said that to set up a very bad furry joke, but I appreciate that you just took it and went wild with it i did think that article was very interesting so <laughs> i wasn't gonna bring it up but then you talked about kissing adler Haslan, so now i'm curious do you think that hello this is casey interrupting the podcast at this point morgan and i have a conversation about whether we should discuss his dark materials and other works that may or may not have been inspired by chronicles of narnia we ultimately decide to save that conversation for later Okay, we can save the child sex for the last episode. <laughs> uh, all right, getting us off of this tangent, now that we've taken care of all of the research we did, I guess we should actually talk about The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, no serial comma. <laughs> the true crime of Chronicles of Narnia. Yes, very, 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 very much. Let's see. Well, I mean, we can start with what did we remember about this book? I remembered... That there was Turkish delight. I remembered that Santa Claus shows up. And I thought that this book had the scene where Aslan creates Narnia. But I was wrong about that. And that's that's about all I remembered. So I had pretty strong memories of this book. I think helped by the fact that since there is a movie, 
which I have seen at least two or three times, that like I think helped reinforce all my memories of it. But I also, you know, read it probably far more than you did. Yes. So I remembered most of the basic plot and I think most of the things I was that caught me off guard this time around were more detailed than anything. I did remember that I think like everyone that read this book had never like had Turkish delight. <laughs> and it sounded so great, right? It sounds like the most delicious thing in this universe. And apparently, I had almost forgotten about this, but I brought it up uh, to my mom after rereading. My mom had, at one point when I think I was in like late elementary school, actually found Turkish Delight and bought it for me. And we tried it, and it's not that good. Can we talk about this? Because... You know, when I read that as a kid, like, I was so confused. Like, what is Turkish Delight? What is this? And they keep mentioning it. Turkish Delight. Turkish Delight. Turkish Delight. It's the greatest thing ever. And I'm, I'm just thinking, what, is it a candy? I guess it's a candy. Maybe it's a candy? I don't know. And I'm just thinking there, it sounds so boring. And like, even now, like, rereading it now, it's like, of all the things that you could have picked to create an infinite amount of them, Turkish Delight seems pretty low. Well, I'm just curious. Um, obviously, like, we are both from the United States. I don't know if Turkish Delight is more prevalent. Ah, prevalent. Prevalent. Word. <laughs> um, prevalent in the UK? Or, like, if there was this big thing about, like, Turkish Delight at the time? Or, you know, because the, the thing is, it's not so weird, maybe, that the White Witch chooses it. Because, like, what does she know? But the fact that Edmund asked for it, what, Edmund couldn't think of anything better? Well, that's another question. Is like, how much do the Narnians know about Earth things? Like, does Narnia have Turkish delight? Because at they first... Well, but they don't have Turkey. Right, exactly. And so, like, at first it seems like... In my notes, I'm writing down, like, does the witch know what Turkish delight is? And sometimes it seems like she doesn't. And she's just like, so maybe they conjure it from, like, Edmund's memory of it. Yeah. But then at other times, it seems like she does know what it is. But how does she know what it is? And I think that's part of why there are things, there are details like that, that feel so sloppy and out of place and, and rushed that, like, somebody who's more adept at writing fantasy would have caught and been like, wait, that's weird. We need to think about that. And it's not like, obviously, Narnia can't have, like, earth foods, you know? There are potatoes, potatoes in Lord of the Rings. It's fine to have crossover like that. You don't have to invent everything from scratch. But it's, like, something specifically that is named after a country in particular. There, and, like, I really want to talk about Christmas, can we talk about no let's let's talk let's talk about Christmas later. We don't talk about it. Let's get back to your point. I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. I have a feeling that most of this is going to go on kind of <laughs> big tangent. Um but yeah, I I think we should probably start by just saying like what did surprise us on this go round that we forgot. And I feel like you probably had more surprises. Like I I expected the Christian influences, but I was surprised, at least from my interpretation, at the values that were being espoused because I find them problematic. And 
that, especially the character of Edmund, I have so many problems with the way Edmund is depicted in this book. And it was kind of shocking to me in some ways how sloppy his character is introduced and presented. And like to skip to the end where you have this whole thing about Edmund where like he's a bad dude and he's bad to the core. And I cannot count the number of times that Peter refers to Edmund as a little beast. Everyone's talking Edmund so hard throughout this whole book. And then suddenly at the end, it's like, actually, he was always a good guy. But it's when he went to school that problems started happening. And there's this weird anti-school agenda that shows up at the end of the book. And I'm like, where the hell is this coming from? Well, it also says, um, let me see if I can find it. But they talk about the kids and what a great job they do ruling Narnia. Yes, yes. And it specifically says at one point that they, uh, yes, liberated young dwarfs and young satyrs from being sent to school. And I was like, huh, interesting. Especially because C.S. Lewis was a professor and therefore part of the educational system. I don't know. It, and and I think this is... I actually did research on this too. You did? So I can, I can tell you the little I found out, which is essentially that I think he has no problem necessarily with school, but like you'll, I think it was specifically that Edmund like went to like a boarding school. And I guess C.S. Lewis was like, had a lovely idyllic childhood. And then he got sent to a boarding school, Uh... which was apparently miserable. So yeah, it's, it's very much, this is his personal thing where he's like, let the children be free. Okay. Except don't let them have sex apparently, or put on makeup. (laughs) No. God forbid, no lipstick. That's one step away from romance, I guess. Yep. Uh, I don't know. There, there. Yeah. So that was strange. There are like a lot of strange details. Like there's that one moment where all the kids are in Narnia, and they're like, "What are we doing here? Where do we go? What's happening?" And they see like this Robin flying from branch to branch in a very deliberate way and they're like let's follow that robin and edmund brings up a very reasonable point of like hey how do we know that this is something we can trust and then peter offers the lamest justification where he says well in all the books i've read robins have never been the bad guys so this can't be a bad guy and and that's it that's that's all the argument, and they're fine just following this bird. And and that's the thing, is like there's these leaps of logic throughout the entire book that are so perplexing and so frustrating that I just kept having to stop myself and asking why. Why are they doing this? Why are these characters operating in this way? And a question I would like to posit for, for uh I guess the entire world, but for you as well. Like, what What if we had a situation where Lucy met the witch first? Because Lucy meets the fawn, the fawn explains the whole situation, and Lucy just buys into it. But the narrative is trying to suggest that, like, Edmund buys into the witch's belief because Edmund is a selfish <laughs> bag. And Lucy believes the fawn because Lucy is pure of heart. But I just feel like 
if the situations were reversed and Lucy met the witch first and she had been seduced by the buckets of Turkish delight <laughs> or presumably something better. I imagine Lucy has better taste. But why why should we believe that Lucy is any more pure of heart than Edmund just because like she just happens to meet the right person at the right time? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a question that I think is hard to answer, like, with this book alone. I think I have an argument based on the series more broadly, um, which, like, I'll still give, because why not? Um, but I, I agree, like, I think cards on the table, Edmund's my favorite. So, you know, this is always a, a tough moment for me. Although I will say that I uh, noticed this time, so when he's, like, tromping off to go find the witch's castle he gets all grumpy about how there aren't good roads and he's like when i'm king i'll make there be good roads and i'm like you know what i bet you do edmund i'm sure you make good roads when you're king oh i just can't wait to be king and build some roads yeah he just wants there to be infrastructure man (laughs) yeah going off of that point um they talked later a little bit about how you know king peter becomes king peter the magnificent susan susan the gentle Edmund is Edmund the Just, and Lucy is Lucy the Valiant. And I think that those kind of give a little bit of an indication of sort of the categories the four kids fall in. Like, Peter's very much the leader, the brave one, the, like, you know, probably he has gold hair, that sort of thing, right? And Susan, even though she's called Susan the Gentle, what most people talk about is how beautiful she is all the time. And so she gets very much put into this category of, sort of superficial beauty which uh we all talk about i'm sure a lot with the last battle yes (laughs) and then edmund is edmund the just he's very logical just like i think you brought up like he makes a good point about the robin how do they know like he's i think more analytical and not really emotional like clearly he does he is influenced by his emotions here but i think that Lucy is shown as she just kind of has this instinctive compassion and goodness that then gives her this, both in this book and going forward, of what the right thing to do is. Like, she follows her heart, and Edmund is is led more by his brains. You know, in Edmund's brain, at first he's very suspicious of the witch, and then, you know, she feeds him magic stuff, which helps. But he also is like, ah, I have been treated well by this person. She's the queen. I logically know, like citizens will maybe talk smack about the queen you know he is just kind of like seeing is believing this is what makes sense why why would i trust these other people and then of course there is the influence of magic and i'm sure we'll debate to what extent he is influenced by magic we don't talk about it. but yes i think that what the book is trying to say is that lucy has this sort of like instinctive goodness and sense of what is right and wrong that none of the other three really possess. Yes, and I and I suppose the book is consistent in that there's this, to me, an infuriating scene, the first scene with the professor, where Peter and oh. Susan go to him and try to argue the logic of, like, how can a world exist inside a wardrobe? And the professor, <sighs> he argues. So amusing, because I love this scene. Oh go on. Oh my god. The professor argues that well lucy's not a liar ergo it must be true and it's all based on the on the this premise that like well Edmund's a bad person and lucy is not ergo we should listen to the good person here regardless of anything else and i'm like what a terrible 
rationale. Man, I felt so sympathetic for Edmund because the dude just does not get a break. His brother calls him a beast. Everyone says he's a jerk and a liar. Aslan has a line at the end where it's like he first says like, oh, the past is the past. And then he's then he just drops. Let me let me pull this up. I wrote it down. Let's see. Must more people die for Edmund? And it's like, God, Aslan, give the kid a break. (laughs) To be fair, I don't think Edmund's conscious at that point. I believe it's directed at Lucy. So I think Edmund luckily is not hearing that line. Yes, but it's nonetheless, it's just like the the kid cannot catch a break. And it's like all the logic of the book presupposes bad people are bad, good people are good. Ergo, regardless of how ridiculous or absurd a thing a good person says, you must accept their word because they're good. And there's like a very circular logic, which is very fitting. <laughs> I'm going to have to argue against that. I don't think he does a very nuanced depiction of there being some middle ground. But, I mean, I do think we're shown that, like, Edmund has the capacity to be a good person, but hasn't been acting on that. We're told kind of over and over again that deep down Edmund knows this is wrong and he has a conscience and he's not paying attention to it. But that said, I did want to bring up, because this actually surprised me this time, it was one of the details I had forgotten about. It is, let me find it. When they're talking about the witch with um, the beavers. So Mr. Beaver um, makes it very clear that the white witch is no daughter of Eve. She comes from your father, Adam's first wife. Her they called Lilith. And she was one of the jinn. That's what she comes from on one side. And on the other, she comes of the giants. No, no, there isn't a drop of real human blood in the witch. And then Mrs. Beaver says, that's why she's bad all through. And then Mr. Beaver says, true enough. There may be two views about humans, meaning no offense to the present company, but there's no two views about things that look like humans and aren't. And then they have a little debate about whether or not dwarves can be good. (laughs) But there's this idea that humans somehow have the capacity to be both good and evil. But because of the witch's heritage, she has no capacity to be anything but evil. Which, by the way, if because the logic of that is odd like the genetics don't make sense i'll just say that the genetics don't make sense because if the witch is a product of adam and lilith that means she's half human like what i don't understand i think they're trying to argue that lilith wasn't human yeah but adam is so yeah i guess then she would be uh one fourth human yes because she's half giant and then no because all right, wait, see, this is, this is... So, okay, so, so she, on one side is descended from Adam and Lilith, and the other side is descended from giants. Okay, so we're saying she comes from Adam's side and Lilith. Mm-hmm. But Adam is, Adam's not technically her father. No, I'll just repeat it. Uh, she comes from Adam's first wife, her they called Lilith, and she was one of the jinn. That's what she comes from on one side. And on the other, she comes of the giant. So she actually doesn't have Adam at all. It's Lilith who then apparently had sex with the giant. Okay. Anyhow, I would also <laughs> like to just put in a note here. We can tab this for the future um, when we start getting different races of humans. But um, the mention of the fact that she comes from the jinn, that Lilith is a jinn, I think is the first of what will be many derogatory references to 
people from the Middle East and that culture. So just put a tab in that for later books. And I mean, the myth of Lilith is worth exploring as well, because there's this idea that God created Lilith first before Eve, and she was intended to be Adam's wife. But Lilith was essentially like, nah, and she went off. And also, in Jewish tradition, Lilith is like, (laughs) it's great. She's, She's like this spirit that visits men at night and has sex with them. Yeah, she's a succubus. She's a succubus, essentially. So she's often used in this very derogatory way to talk about like faithless women or women who don't kowtow to tradition or whatever the case might be and she's definitely used in a very derogatory fashion here yes make that make of that what you will i suppose we can i'm sure it'll come up again as you said i do think that there is very much in some cases this black and white you're good or you're evil i do think c.s lewis leaves open the opportunity for humans to be both and have more fluidity, but it's uh, certainly not... The depiction of Edmund could be a lot more nuanced. I think that there are moments where the narrative makes sure to let us know he actually does kind of feel bad deep down, and I enjoy those, but it's... He also, like, this whole idea that he was just, like, twisted by the school is very flimsy, and yeah, we don't really get that until afterwards, and I do love the fact that we don't get to see the conversation that Edmund and Aslan have, because I think that moment for me, I can always just kind of imagine them out talking, and and I think it's a very strong moment, but I do think that because we don't get that, the transformation is also a little bit harder to deal with, because we don't get to see what what really... (laughs) I mean, obviously, I think he was hugely impacted by the fact that he was almost killed by the White Witch up against a tree, but like... (laughs) It would, it's also, there's a part of me that wishes we did get that scene. It's a good way. Just hold a knife up to somebody's <laughs> throat and they'll be better. It's a great thing to teach our children. But yeah, I mean, there are moments where the, the narrative tries to sort of... The thing is, for me, it feels like it's backtracking because there, there are plenty of examples where the narrative feeds so strongly into the fact that Edmund is just a piece of... <laughs> You know, there's like, there's the moment with Mr. Beaver saying, the moment I set eyes on that brother of yours, I said to myself, treacherous. And it keeps getting reinforced from the narrative that like all these arguments that Edmund's trying to make, they're all borne out of the fact that, well, he's arguing from a malicious position where he's trying mm-hmm. to like trick his his brothers and sisters. And like, there's that scene where he... He's a jerk to Lucy and and says that Lucy just made it all up, even though he went into Narnia. So you do get these attempts to to try to allow Edmund some nuance, but they they feel so feeble to the larger trajectory of the story and of his character, where he is just corrupt and and he's just an evil little thing and like of course he would be the one that'd be turned by the witch of course he'd be the one to lie of course he'd be the one to do this and that and everyone else is all his siblings are good and decent people and he is not and it's just kind of assumed that that's the way until it's not and and like you were saying those vital moments of change kind of happen off screen in a way 
so we don't ever see them. And it for me, it's an integral that we do see them because otherwise there really isn't anything redeeming about his character as depicted in this story. Which is why he's my favorite. Because <laughs> he of all the of all the characters in this book, he's the most interesting by far. Everyone else, it's almost just a trope of like, I'm a good guy or I'm a bad guy. Aslan might be the exception to that, because C.S. Lewis does definitely play up the kind of how he's awesome in every sense of the word, where mm-hmm. it's it's both amazing and terrifying, which I did like that. Should we should we just talk about the things we like? Because I think we've spent yeah. most of the time so far just saying all the things we didn't like. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say for the thing that kind of surprised me, I know I've already talked about that a little bit. But I was expecting going back. I have very like vivid memories of this book of like certain things like the Turkish delight Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I kind of thought going back a lot of times things seem bigger when you're a kid in a way. And so you'll go back and revisit it and be like, oh, I don't really get the same sort of feeling. But I think C.S. Lewis does a really good job of in certain places having this like very small little description that really evokes an emotion very quickly so like i'm trying to think of good examples because uh, by the time i was thinking about that i didn't really write them down but like when they're talking about how you feel after you've been crying all night he put it puts it very simply and like it really evokes that emotion and there's lots of moments where he's really able to evoke either emotion or setting very well i think and i was still able to see things very vividly Every time they ate, I got so hungry, even with the Turkish delight, which I know is bad. I still wanted Edmund's Turkish delight. But like also when they're having tea with the beavers and their Christmas meal, so hungry all the time. Aslan's paws and mane, I still really want to touch. So like things like that, I think he's still, especially for kids, I think does such a great job of evoking the world and the setting and the feelings. I don't know. With the amount of people that make out with Aslan, I think I want to stay away from his face. So Apparently his breath is so fragrant. Apparently, but like, I'm okay. I don't need him to breathe on me, but. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, there, I agree with you. Like when C.S. Lewis is at his best, like his writing is super evocative, like too of my favorite scenes in this book. One is when spring returns to Narnia and he's just describing how everything's coming back to life and it feels so full and lush and real. It's just a really well done scene. I really love that. I love speaking of emotional torture. I love the scene where Aslan is killed because it's, it's horrifying and the sort of buildup of having all these creatures there, all these evil looking creatures and how they're timid at first and they don't really quite know what to do. And some start abusing him and then it just sort of escalates and, and you f- just feel the helplessness of the entire situation. That's really well done. And I wish he'd done more of that because other times it, his writing is sometimes so awkward and for me off-putting. It, like Every time he interrupts the narrative to be like, and now I'm going to tell this story or I bet that made you feel sad. I'm like, shut the f*** 
fuck up, C.S. Lewis. I don't need you to tell me. Just tell the story. And I get that like, he's going for like this quaint charm. You fully derailed from good I things. I know, to I know. Bad. I just I just realized that I've I just went into the negative. Let's stick on good like descriptions. I think also like I wanted to rip off of the Aslan death scene. I think a lot of the scenes of more violence and heartbreak have that to them. I mean, Peter killing the wolf. I thought I had imagined how grisly that was for a kid's book. That is disgusting. I mean, it talks about how like he's punched his sword into it. And there's this moment where like the wolf is still like alive and like panting on him. And there's fur and blood everywhere. Like that was very evocative and also the scene where the little group of animals is feasting in the forest and the witch comes upon them and turns them into stone and that's i think that's actually edmund's turning point i believe the book says like this was the first time in a long time he felt like bad for something that wasn't him so i think that those scenes are some of the best what is another positive from you casey Long pause. Uh, well, I guess some things are cute. I liked the fawn. Mr. Tumnus. He he seems nice. He's very cute. I also like the callback <laughs> at the end with him. That he's the one who told them about the stag that he mentions to Lucy in like the first chapter. So good, good callback, C.S. Lewis. Good job. I uh, I appreciate, well, I guess this isn't really a positive, but I do like it in that I appreciate how the sense of geography in this book makes no sense <laughs> because they talk about how there are some points in the book where they say like, oh, the witch is like half an hour away from the beaver's house and like Edmund can walk to the castle in a single night. I think Narnia is very small. That's the impression I got this time around. I was like, oh, Narnia's small. Small. (laughs) You can apparently see the castle from the forest. You can apparently travel there in a single day. But it also seems like it takes the same amount of time to travel by foot at night during a snowstorm to the castle as it does for the witch to ride her sleigh and i know she eventually has to walk on foot but to ride her sleigh from the castle to the stone table but it also takes like a day and a half for the beavers and the other kids to none of this makes sense they're like and and again i think that gets back to like how this story wasn't planned at all like if you compare this to like tolkien's obsessive detailing of what the world looks like and what the maps look like and how far things are and how long it would take to get from point a to point b and you compared that to here it's like ah it doesn't matter it's a fairy tale and i do appreciate that there there is a certain charm where it's like those details don't really matter that's not the point the point is this larger adventure that they're going on that's full of fun and dread and excitement and terror and action and no love but that's that's okay family love familial love or or you know making out with aslan (laughs) so like i do appreciate that it recognizes what it is i don't think it 
does that well all of the time, but I appreciate that it doesn't necessarily try to be something bigger or more adult than what it is. Yeah, and that's why I find a lot of the narrative interjections, I do find a lot of them charming. There's certain ones I'd like to talk a little bit after I finish um, about how many times we're told about who closes or doesn't close the wardrobe door. But like certain ones of them I enjoy because sometimes that is where we get nuance. Uh huh. So I enjoyed that maybe the narrator is like, okay, so like it might look like this from the outside, but I just wanted to like remind you that actually, you know, Edmund doesn't actually want his siblings to be turned into stone. <laughs> and I'm like, thanks. I appreciate you just popping in and letting me know. And I think that like some of it can be kind of cute. But yeah, there are other moments like with the wardrobe door, which is clearly meant to who closes and doesn't close the wardrobe door is supposed to be an indication of who is better, Mm -hmm. right? We see three different people interact with the wardrobe door. The only one who closes it is Edmund. There's no actual consequences to closing the wardrobe door. So, like, the only reason it's in there is to let us know that Peter and Lucy are are better than Edmund, um, which I wish there had been more of a payoff than that, especially because he reiterates it so many times. And I think that the mistake that he makes a few places in here is, you know, I think for the most part, he's pretty respectful of the kids that are reading and trusts that they'll be able to, like, get it. Certainly in terms of how dark he's willing to go, he's like, kids will be okay with this. And I think for the most part, he he does have that respect for them. But the repetition in certain instances seems like he doesn't trust the reader to like remember anything. <laughs> and so those moments, I think, were the moments I found uh, most irritating other than what I'm sure we'll talk about at some point, the sexism. Uh, yeah, that's funny that you mentioned that because that's why I think I did not care for those interjections at all because it to me it came off as extremely condescending like he is just assuming that kids are stupid so that that leads to me to my another question that i wrote to myself does c.s lewis hate kids <laughs> which maybe he does and i think it is it's worth noting not not as necessarily a criticism but it is worth noting that like these are the only children's books that c.s lewis ever wrote he did not have a background in writing for children and he did not pursue it after and i think sometimes it shows because it does feel like and i don't think he did it i don't think c.s lewis hates kids but i do think that sometimes he's worried that they won't follow and maybe maybe that's the case i don't think that this story is particularly complex so i think it's just overcautious but it does come off as really patronizing that he has to spell everything out and i just don't think they're necessary because it's not like he's not breaking down the bible here he's not breaking down ulysses here or something like that it's just it's a very straightforward fairy tale about good guys versus bad guys and i guess the the ones that are most annoying to me is when he, he starts a new chapter and he's like, well, I better get back to talking about Edmund now, just so you understand, I'm talking about Edmund now and his <laughs> story. And it's like, just get on with it. I think it's interesting, having like first experienced this book when I could not read and my dad was reading it to me, I think that works a lot better with this format because then it seems kind of conversational, right? 
it seems like the person who's telling the story is telling it directly to you. And this is part of a conversation you're having. And it also works well, especially if you're only reading like a chapter or two a night, then it can be like a little bit of a reminder when the book's being picked up the next day. So I think in that way for kids, it works really well to have that conversational tone. And I think maybe part of what's charming for me is that like when I'm reading those interjections, I am still reading them a little bit in my dad's voice, kind of him, you know, sitting down when I'm going to sleep in and being like, so, you know, I know you were wondering about Edmund. Mm -hmm. So I think that maybe that those work better in the audio medium um, where it is more like someone just telling the story to you as opposed to if you're sitting down and reading the book. Yeah, you you just read like you're not going to forget about the wardrobe door, you know, like you got it. So I wonder if he was thinking about this book in the context of reading aloud. And I think actually something to track is I'm pretty sure that narrative voice, uh, it becomes less part of the story as things go on is my memory. I could be wrong. So I'd, I'd love for us to kind of keep an eye out for that. But I think that the first book does it the most. So it could be interesting to see if he grows towards writing them more as, as books and less as stories that you tell to a kid at night. That's a good point. I still don't like it, but that's a good <laughs> point. For me, the way I read it, it's like he's trying to go for this like very quaint and charming tone of voice that mimics the spirit of fairy tales. And he's trying to purposely keep it light and bouncy and fun. And... I think that's an interesting point you bring up about, like, you hear this in your dad's voice. I hear it in a smarmy British accent that makes me just want to punch the dude in the face. So I think, I mean, that's an important detail of, like, when the narrator speaks, who do we actually hear in our heads? Obviously, that's not necessarily any fault of the narrative that says more about us than it does about the books. But I do think it's... A vital part of the experience of reading these books is like whose voice do we hear because Lewis has chosen to include that narrator's voice in there to some degree we're going to impose a voice on that narrator to fill in that person as a character that's telling this story and for me it's it's a jerk it's a <laughs> British jerk oh <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> Speaking of reading things aloud, though, I did take the the moment this time to read the two little poems we get aloud, just because I remember loving them as a kid because I thought they sounded so magical. And this time I was like, oh, some of these don't rhyme correctly. Mm. Um, and reading them out loud really brought that to light. Maybe they rhyme in a British accent. Maybe the problem is that I'm American. And I'm proud to be an American Where at least I know I'm free And I won't forget the men who Okay, I, I will read them. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bares his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. So that's number one. Uh, number two. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Care Paravellan throne, the evil time will be over and done. So there's a lot of like almost rhymes or they look like rhymes on the page. But then when you pronounce them out loud, they're not quite rhymes. I still like them because I, I like magic prophecy poems. 
But I, I did this time think, hmm, maybe, <laughs> maybe some of these words should have actually rhymed. Yeah, I think there's a tradition, you know, I've heard the way it would have been pronounced, it would have been pronounced differently so that it would rhymed, or the poets were less concerned that it, whether or not they actually rhymed when spoken out loud, as long as they looked alike. You know, I don't think anyone's pronounces done as don i mean we can we can start pronouncing it that way yeah um well that one was pretty bad but um <laughs> also teeth and death which i guess they both have at the end right but like uh, and main and again which i guess if you do main again, again. is there any way to like rhyme teeth and death more death death you know, what do we say to the god of death? An accent. You know, not today. Do you think I Game know. of Thrones was inspired by Chronicles of Narnia? Um, in terms of, you know what? Yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> I think George R. R. Martin's clearly, I mean, I think it's, it's more a comment on Lord of the Rings. In that, like, Lord of the Rings, right, is an alternate history for England. Although Game of Thrones... Well, A Song of Ice and Fire does not posit itself as an alternate history of England. It's drawing so much on English history that I think that it kind of ends up very much speaking to that. And he's clearly trying to, like, defeat this these tropes of, like, there is good and there is evil, right? And that, like, fighting uh, for a throne can solve everything. So I think it, it speaks more to the Lord of the Rings than that. But I, I do think it speaks a little bit to... It's speaking to all all kind of older fantasy and saying there's not this black and white i can't ask you dumb hypothetical questions because <laughs> then you'll I'll take them seriously them. and answer them <laughs> well sorry <laughs> that's that's okay yes those poems well you see wait does george r, r. martin make prophecy poems that actually rhyme get back to me We'll we'll do a comparison between C.S. Lewis and G.R.R. Martin and uh, see who writes the better prophecy poems. It's funny that you'd say that you like those kind of poems because I absolutely hate them. They're, they're always so convenient and so specific to the situation in a way that, like, actual prophecy never is. And for me, it takes actual the- Actual prophecy? Bruh. What I mean by actual prophecy, like if you were to look at the Bible and read the prophecies in there and then see the ways that people try to justify, oh, that prophesied this event, it's always a stretch. And that's what makes it fun for me because it's open for interpretation and you can look at it five different ways and justify five different outcomes with the same prophecy. And that's what makes it fun. With these poems, you can't. They they are literally describing exactly what is happening right now. And to me, it's just like, ugh, I roll my eyes at them. So don't don't you make fun of my my interest in prophecies, okay? I like I'm, I'm not. What I actually thought this time is I I still uh, liked the poems mostly, I think. I will say I think this is residual from the fact that I really liked them as a kid. So I have I think this is truly nostalgia right here. Uh, this time I was like, who made these prophecies? Where did they come from? I want to know. Tell me about the Narnian tradition of prophecy. Like, I don't remember whether or not we get more prophecies, but that's something I definitely want to be tracking because 
I'm so curious now who made these very exact prophecies and how they came to be like fully accepted. Right. Who the heck wrote them down and passed them down so that talking beavers will explain to children, <laughs> you know, anywhere from 10 years to 100,000 years later, <laughs> hey, you're going to be the rulers of Narnia. And uh, yeah. This gets back to the thing for me where it's like, it's very clear this book was written initially as a one and done kind of deal. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter where these came from because it's all about having fun and interrupting this narrative so that we can have dinner, this long winded dinner with these beavers um, in the middle of this crisis and being like, hey, you're going to be hunted by the witch. But first let's really sit down and enjoy ourselves, you know? It reminds me of the scene in Lord of the Rings, and I suppose we should apologize in advance because we're going to be making so many comparisons to Lord of the Rings throughout this series. I'm sorry. It's inevitable. But it does remind me in Lord of the Rings where inexplicably in the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, Frodo is given the ring by Gandalf, who then journeys off. And then something like 20, 30, 40 years pass... In the narrative, while Frodo's just hanging out in the Shire, waiting for Gandalf to show back up. And it's just like, it, it kind of kills the sense of urgency, knowing that, like, well, the dude can just hang out for 40 years. No big deal. And that's what that scene did for me. But uh, that's a tangent. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You I were agree, saying. But I also <laughs> enjoyed the realism of how the children were hungry all the time. I will just say that. I think a lot of times in fantasy stories, people forget to eat. Yeah. Enjoyed that they were really hungry all the time and really needed I to I mean, eat. if we're going to take that to that extreme, I feel like we needed to see the children like peeing. We needed a scene with oh Peter wa- walking off into the woods being like, hold on a second. I need to... Oh my god. To... <sighs> Anyhow. I want to see Peter pee. Okay? I, I, I don't even know what to say. I'm just gonna <laughs> go and say that uh, I will say, kind of to loop back to something earlier in our conversation, probably the one redeeming factor about the movie that I remember is I'm pretty sure they do a better job of being like part of why Edmund is doing the thing he's he's doing is to rebel against Peter because they have a bad relationship because Peter's trying to basically be his dad and Edmund's like you're not my dad um, and I think they do a better job of tying in how the fact that this is set during the London Blitz and the reason they're the kids are there is because their parents sent them away I think the movie does a better job of tying that in. And I I wish, actually, I had thought that was more a part of this book. Because I do think it's so significant that this is happening during the Blitz. And I had thought that was more, we heard a little bit more about how the kids were feeling about that. And that was clearly just from the movie. Because the kids do not talk about it at all. They don't seem upset. They don't seem worried about their parents. Uh, So that was a surprise. That didn't factor in at all. I was like, oh... It's why would I guess the only reason to set it during the puts is to get these kids sent to this house and and no other reason. I do like that. It's like an hour later and you're still talking about things that are surprising to you from your oh. reread. That's very good. I'm glad we haven't finished up with that part of our discussion yet. But I actually agree with you. Like, I I was wondering about that because we get this 
the context for even beginning the story is that they're escaping from the London Blitz. And I and I'm wondering if part of it was just like this is an act of pure escapism and we're just not even going to talk about that because that's not the point. The point is to get away from that. Like literally the kids get away from that both by going to the countryside and then going into Narnia, uh, but also just emotionally for people to get away from that scene because they live through that. They don't need that reminder in the book that this is something that happened and it was terrible. That said, like it's it seems like a vital part of why these kids are here and to some degree who these kids would be. Mm-hmm. Like to have to go through something as terrifying as that and then to have to like live with the knowledge that your parents are still there. There's a very good chance that they might die. And having to live with that burden, you know, it's like, no, no, no. Edmund's not bad because of that. It's because he went to boarding school. God forbid. And it's like, it's so weirdly removed at times where, where like, I don't know. The explanation for why Edmund is the way he is, is built into the narrative. And it's like, C.S. Lewis didn't see it. Yeah, although, like, now I'm wondering if maybe the whole Narnia thing is just a metaphor for, like, living through the blitz itself. Oh, my God. I mean, they go into this whole other country and, like, have to go through a war, and they, like, live, like, a whole life, and basically they're returned to their kid bodies with, like, adult memories, and, like, they've been fundamentally changed and had to grow up too fast. Is this all a metaphor for the blitz? That's a very good question. So are they now adults living in the bodies of children? I'm pretty sure in Prince Caspian, it's like their memories are relatively like they have them, but they're kind of like distant from them in a way. So they don't fully like, and I remember in Prince Caspian, and we'll have to check and see that like they come back and they start over the course of being back in Narnia, kind of re their minds sort of re age up. So by the end, they're more like their adult selves and then they go back and they lose it all again. (laughs) Also, just a weird question. I thought they had given the ages for the kids in this book. They do not. I have no idea how old any of these children are. What was like your feeling on ages? If I had to give numbers to the ages, I'd say like Peter is 12, Susan is 10, Edmund is 8, and Lucy is like 5. Wow. That's my feeling. Yeah, and see, I normally put Lucy at around seven. So then they all kind of, they're all kind of squished together very close from that. I think probably for me, Peter hits 13. Because I think he's definitely got that, like, on the cusp of, uh, quote unquote, becoming a man energy. A willow wisp of a boy, but I walk out this arena a man. A confident man. Yeah. And like Susan's maybe, yeah, 11 or 12 like right behind him and then I think uh, we clearly see in books going forward and I think you do get that sense in this book that Susan and Peter are closer in age and Edmund and Lucy are closer in age yeah but I did think it was weird that we we didn't get any indication of how old they were yeah you know and thinking about that actually not to to uh, preempt this subject because I'm sure we'll be getting into it but like there is a line in here where Aslan is like Men fighting in war is great and dandy, but women fighting in war is gross, and and you don't want to see that. 
Casey here again, interrupting the podcast. I have to offer a minor correction here. It was Father Christmas, not Aslan, who said this. My sincerest apologies to Lion Jesus. <sighs> Battles are ugly when women fight. That's the that's the line. But what about children fighting in wars? <laughs> Child warfare. Oh god. Oh my god. Is Aslan like a a warlord here kidnapping children and forcing them to fight? I really love that you brought that up because I hadn't thought about that. And I hate that line with a visceral passion. And so, yeah, I do think it really brings up the uh, some of the inherent hypocrisy and biases in this book that like, yeah, battles are ugly when women fight. But we're going to let a kid that we're guessing is like around 12 or 13 lead an entire army and fight. <laughs> and then another kid, probably under 10 years old is also going to be in the battle fighting. You know, I think the witch was right. Edmund was right. The witch is the good guy because, you know, the witch isn't forcing any children to fight. No, she's just turning them to stone and murdering them against trees. Okay, well, that's just propaganda, okay? That's just, people are saying that. And like, and look, they describe it that when the creatures wake up, it's like they describe it as waking up from a very nice nap. So it wasn't that, that big of a deal. (sighs) (laughs) Stick around for part two next week. Or whenever we put it out. Okay, bye!